Welcome to Onco Farm Pod. I'm your host, John Mazar. I want to thank you all for coming back and, and listening to us again. It's been a couple weeks uh, since our inaugural pod. I want to thank those of you who have listened. Uh, really appreciative of uh, your listening and your feedback. Just to let you all know uh, where I hope to, to move with this going forward is to to find some regularity of putting out podcasts. Uh, currently waiting on uh, approval into the iTunes store and that would move forward uh, from there. So uh, today we're going to talk about um, adjuvant TKIs. Question mark? Eventually. Uh, we're going to get to that, but uh, it's been, like I said, a little over two weeks uh, since the last pod, so we're going to run through real quick, hopefully rapid fire style, some of the FDA um, updates, approvals, and expanded indications, as, uh, and then we'll, we'll end up with a a little bit of a, of a deeper dive on this most recent approval for sunitinib uh, for adjuvant renal cell carcinoma. So we're going to start with uh, Vemurafenib was granted regular approval, and this was November 6th, so uh, about 11 days ago, for Erdheim-Chester disease, but Erdheim-Chester disease with a V600 mutation of BRAF. If you'd heard of Erdheim-Chester disease, you know more than I do. Uh, this is apparently non-Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Um, odd fact, my grandfather died of histiocytosis X, uh, which back in the early 80s is what it was known. Now it would have been called Langerhans cell histiocytosis, and uh, I may do a little bit deeper dive on that uh, at some point. But this was this approval, and this was not an accelerated approval, this is a regular approval. It's based on a study of 22 patients, CR rate of 54%, only one of those a complete response. So typical results from what we see with TKIs and advanced disease. Good response rates, most of those are partial responses. Also on November 6th, we had the uh, the regular approval for electinib for uh, ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. Now, electinib was already approved back in December of 2015 as part of the accelerated approval. This is the updated uh, analysis from uh, the pivotal ALEC study, uh, which showed a median progression-free survival of 25.7 months, with electinib versus 10.4 months with crizotinib. So, um, you know, a, almost a two and a half fold increase in median progression free survival. Now, overall response rates are 79% versus 72%. So, as far as the drug working initially, uh, in terms of response rate, pretty similar between electinib and crizotinib. The big difference here has to be the CNS uh, distribution of electinib and the activity in the CNS. So, the CNS relapse rate or synapse recurrence rate as uh, site of first uh, disease recurrence or progression was only 12% with electinib versus 45% with crizotinib. So that CNS activity is a big reason for uh, the apparent um, superiority of electinib versus crizotinib for positive non-small cell lung cancer. So November 6th, big day. Uh, for TKIs. On November 9th, brintuximab vedotin was approved for primary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma uh, that is, is expressing uh, CD30, of course, or CD30 expressing mycosis fungoides, which is my favorite malignancy to say. Also on November 9th, desatinib was approved for pediatric CML. Uh, this is great news for our colleagues in pediatric hemong circles because we know that the drugs uh, that we use a lot in adults don't uh, get studied as much with children, so good for them. Uh, to be honest with you, I had not heard of pediatric CML, and uh, it turns out it's about 3% of childhood uh, leukemias, and now uh, there are some data for using desatinib in those patients, so that's good. Uh, November 16th, 
emicizumab-KXWH was approved for hemophilia A in patients who uh, have required um, bypassing agents. Um, so it would be things like FIBA um, or activated uh, prothrombin complex concentrates or uh, recombinant factor 7. Uh, I'm not sure why this has a designation, you know, this dash KXWH like a biosimilar because it is the first approval for emicizumab. Um, ironically, this came up on rounds for us um, a month or so ago. Uh, there is a the pivotal study for this was published in New England Journal of Medicine on August 31st of 2017. There's a nice two-minute video summarizing those study results if you want to look into that a little bit further. Uh, but this drug, it's a monoclonal antibody. It's a biphenotypic monoclonal antibody. So it binds to both uh, activated factor 9 and factor 10. And what that does is um, basically create a complex that fulfills the role of activated factor 8, which then leads to activation of 10A, which is where the intrinsic extrinsic pathways merge to form the common pathway. So it was a really effective drug in, in patients with hemophilia A who require an inhibitor. So these are um, patients who had become refractory to, to normal factor 8 infusions. Uh, and this drug uh, worked very well. Um, the, the side effect that I want to mention, there's a boxed warning for thrombotic microangiopathy and thrombotic events. And this happened in patients who had received uh, APCC, or activated prothrombin complex concentrate, for at least 24 hours. So that's something to keep in mind uh, if you're like me and you, uh, you find yourself taking care of some hemophilia patients every now and then. Also on November 16th, uh, obinutuzumab plus uh, was approved for follicular lymphoma um, in an obinutuzumab plus chemo followed by obinutuzumab maintenance regimen. Um, and this was a comparison versus uh, rituximab as well. So uh, they had a fair comparison, which is something we don't always get in some of these indolent um, hematologic malignancies. This is the gallium study. Uh, gallium is also element 31 on the periodic table. Uh, so these were folks getting either a CD20 monoclonal antibody uh, obinutuzumab or rituximab and chemo. Uh, most of them got bendamustine, a little over, you know, 57% got benda, uh, about a third chop, and the remaining CVP. Now, um, the results of the gallium study were published in October of 2017 in New England Journal of Medicine by Davies and colleagues. Uh, so I'm going to kind of compare what's reported in that publication in the New England Journal of Medicine and the FDA press release. So median follow-up 34.5 months uh, when this was published in, uh, in October in NEJM and 38 months uh, in the FDA press release. Uh, the hazard ratio for progression-free survival was 0.66 in the NEGM article and 0.72 in the FDA article. Uh, so as time has gone on, the progression-free survival uh, may not be as good as was reported early on. So we'll have to see on this. Um, there were more um, infusion reactions, as you might expect, in the obinutuzumab group. Uh, it's follicular, so you're probably not going to see an overall survival difference just because of the indolent nature of, of that disease. Okay, November 16th, also a big day. The third approval, uh, gosh, that was yesterday. Today's November 17th. Was sudenitinib for adjuvant treatment of high-risk renal cell carcinoma in patients who had received a nephrectomy. Um, this is... I believe, I may be wrong about this, but I think this is the first approval of a TK for adjuvant treatment of a malignancy, which is not something I think of 
when I hear the word adjuvant treatment. When I hear adjuvant, I think of Bonadonna's New England Journal of Medicine article from 1976 where you have a solid tumor, you resect it, you give an agent, in the case of Bonadonna article or what we're familiar with solid tumors, chemotherapy. That chemotherapy kills any areas of micrometastatic disease that were not in the surgical resection. And because they're micrometastatic, they're gonna be growing very fast um, because there's not a lot of them and the chemotherapy should kill them. And that should prevent uh, what patients would call their cancer coming back, but we think of as killing micrometastatic disease, which makes sense with chemotherapy. You could say it makes sense with immunotherapy as well as, as upregulating up the immune system to find these areas of micrometastatic disease. That might be a, uh, the, the best place for use of immunotherapy going forward. But for TKIs, it seems a little strange to me. So we're gonna get into this a little bit. So uh, besides uh, what was released by the FDA, you can look at the Ravondin Mozart article, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2016. This is the S-TRAC, S-TRAC, the S-TRAC study. So they had 100, sorry, 615 patients with clear cell, renal cell carcinoma, ECOG is zero to two, uh, and they had to have uh, high risk uh, for recurrence based on the UISS criteria, which I was not familiar with. I'm more familiar with the uh, Morel Sloan Kettering uh, criteria, although that's really for metastatic disease. So the U in UISS is for UCLA. And this is basically patients with a T3 uh, renal cell carcinoma with a Furman uh, nuclear grade of two or greater and an ECOG of one plus or T4 with any of the other stuff, or N1 or N2 disease, okay? So this is either a T3 lesion with a higher grade of malignancy and some, uh, some, um, some disability, not disability, but uh, an ECOG of one plus, or patients that were uh, T4, or patients with any nodal disease. So those are the patients we're talking about here. And the folks at UCLA, have uh, demonstrated that they're high risk because their five-year disease or five-year overall survival is 44%. So these are patients where uh, you know it, it's basically 50/50 they're going to be alive five years from now. Okay, so so yeah, high risk disease uh, with stage three. So these patients uh, after nephrectomy, so within three to 12 weeks of their nephrectomy, they were randomized to 50 milligrams in the traditional four two model that we're used to. So four weeks of sunitinib followed by two weeks off, 50 milligrams of that for a year, or placebo. Now if you look in the New England Journal of Medicine um, publication and you look in their supplementary appendix and you look at the protocol, there was a period of time where they were doing 37.5 daily um, and somehow there was an amendment to the traditional uh, you know, four on, two off. And so what they saw was the median um, disease-free survival was 6.8 years in the sunitinib group versus 5.6 years in the placebo group. So more than a year, if you just look at that number of, a, of an increase in median disease-free survival, and that's got a hazard ratio of 0.76, p-value 0.03, so statistically significant. Um, now I'll say, if you look at this curve, and this is what, why I find it so valuable to look at Kaplan-Meier curves, when you look at this curve, you see that the sunitinib curve separates the most from the placebo curve within that first year, suggesting to me that um, we're not actually uh, killing underlying or micrometastatic um, renal cell carcinoma, but we are 
treating a disease that's already there and, and preventing an early recurrence, which certainly has value for these patients. I don't want to discount that. Um, the overall survival data are not mature at this point, but just to give that to you, uh, 64 patients in each group died, and they are randomized one-to-one. -one. So we have a death rate in this group of 20.7% versus 20.9% in placebo groups. So 207 versus 20.9%. Um, there were 54% um, of folks had to have a dose interruption, and so about 50 percent of patients had to have a dose interruption or a dose decrease of sunitinib. Uh, despite that, the average dose of sunitinib when patients were, um, were taking it, not during that two-week off period, was about 46 milligrams, so, so pretty good dose intensity on average. Now, there was a decrease in healthcare-related quality of life uh, in this sunitinib group. Sunitinib is um, not the easiest TKI to take. It's got a lot of toxicities, which uh, I won't get into a whole lot. However, the, the authors did have some criteria for clinically meaningful uh, decreases in health-related quality of life, and there were clinical, clinically meaningful decreases in quality of life uh, in terms of diarrhea and appetite loss for patients taking sunitinib. So when you look at this, this data as a whole, uh, to me it looks like you're taking a, a, a group of patients that are high risk um, for disease recurrence, and in my opinion, that's because the disease is already there. It just has, it's just microscopic. It can't be seen yet. And it's empiric or early preemptive treatment of metastatic disease. And, um, you know, we, we've we've looked at this in other malignancies to some extent. So maintenance pemetrexid and, and non-small cell lung cancer is, is kind of early second line treatment. And that's what this seems to be is early treatment of disease that's going to come back. Now there is value in that. If you look at this disease-free survival, 6.8 years versus 5.6 years. However, after that first year, the slopes of those two curves are pretty much exactly the same. You know, we're not seeing uh, any plateau effect uh, difference in one group or the other. Um, so adjuvant sunitinib, uh, you know, I, I would I would rather if I had a patient, I'd rather. Uh, send them to a uh, higher volume center for an adjuvant uh, immunotherapy study. I think that's got a better chance of curing someone versus just um, delaying recurrence, which is, I think, what we're seeing here. And there's certainly value in delaying recurrence for patients' peace of mind, but that comes with uh, toxicity, not to mention the cost of taking sunitinib. Um, now, this was an unselected group of patients. They're, they're all comers with renal cell carcinoma, and they are high risk. We're going to contrast that with um, the publication from earlier this year uh, in metastatic, not metastatic, but in high-risk uh, stage 3 melanoma patients. So this was published in September uh, of 2017 in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, online first, and then made it in the issue uh, just recently. And this is adjuvant uh, dibrafenib and trametinib for stage 3 melanoma compared to placebo. And again, this was a year in this case of dual TKI treatment, TKI treatment for uh, our V600 mutant um, stage 3 melanoma. So relapse-free survival, 58%, um, and this is uh, at a median of 2.8 years of follow-up. So 58% relapse-free survival with the dual TKI, dibrafenib, and trametinib versus 39% with placebo. That's about a 20% absolute difference in relapse-free survival, so um, pretty good. Uh, now, the overall survival, uh, although looks good, 86% versus 77% with a pretty low p-value, 
but the p-value was not low enough because this was uh, an interim analysis and so it didn't meet uh, the boundary uh, for calling it the statistically significant overall survival increase. Now, you look at these curves in the metastatic melanoma patient population, the curves widen out quite a bit more than what you see in the sunitinib versus placebo group for renal cell carcinoma. And I think these are interesting comparisons to make because uh, you know, we know that the dibrafenib, venurafenib, dibrafenib, and trametinib only work in our V600 mutant BRAF melanoma patients. Um, so we're, we're not taking everybody with melanoma, stage three, at higher for occurrence and giving them TKIs, only those that have the, the mutation uh, that our drugs target versus sunitinib we're giving it to all comers with high-risk disease. So it makes sense that when we're smarter with our drug use, because we know more, that the drug seems to work better. Um, so the, the benefit of adjuvant, in quotations, adjuvant TKI with dibrafenib trametinib seems better in metastatic, or it's not metastatic, I keep saying that, in, in stage three melanoma versus that high-risk renal cell carcinoma group. And these are interesting comparisons to make because we know that renal cell carcinoma and melanoma are different malignancies than other disease states, than other solid tumors. So remember, these solid tumors, uh, melanoma, renal cell carcinoma, they don't respond to traditional chemotherapy. These were the first disease states where IL-2 uh, was shown to have some effect, uh, where immunotherapy maybe is most exciting in these disease states. So there, there's something different about these. And if you think about it, we have not seen adjuvant TKI in other disease states. There's uh, you know, neratinib for this, um, I forget the, the exact uh, terminology, extended adjuvant treatment for breast cancer, which had some benefit, even though two years of trastuzumab did not. Um, uh, you know, this has been looked at for non-small cell lung cancer, no benefit. Although when you look uh, just at EGFR mutant disease, you do see some suggestion of benefit again, but not curative. This is, you know, early treatment of, of metastatic disease in my opinion. Um, so while I, I feel like I'm raining on the adjuvant TKI parade here, uh, I'm not. I think that there's value. There, there are value in these drugs at preventing recurrence for these patients. Uh, my issue is with the word adjuvant. When I think of adjuvant, I think of curative, and I don't think we're curing patients with these drugs. Now, time will tell. We don't have mature overall survival analyses for that, and that, that needs to be stressed. But for me, when I think of adjuvant, I think of Bonadonna, I think of CMF, I think of Mosaic and Folfox. Those are the things I'm thinking of. JBR10, cisplatin-based chemo and non-small cell lung cancer. That's what I think of with adjuvant treatment for solid tumors. So thanks for listening. I hope you guys have uh, a great uh, Thanksgiving. If you're here in the States, if you're listening elsewhere, uh, enjoy the rest of November. And thanks for listening to OncoFarmPod. Thank you.